Welcome back um, to Australian History Journals of the Early Explorers. We're up to Chapter 4 of Sir Thomas Mitchell's Journey into the Interior of Australia, which is the journey to find the Kinder, a large river which a bushranger uh, had been boasting about having found. So I just wanted to say... Sorry, I don't have any fancy music or um, sound effects or anything to go along with this. I'm working on a bit of a budget here. Um, but I do appreciate all of you who have listened to the podcast so far. It's uh, very encouraging to think that there are other people out there who find this um, kind of stuff interesting as well. And if you do find this interesting, I really encourage you to read um, Bruce Pascoe's book, most recent book, Dark Emu which came out last year, which led me to uh, recording these journals. So let's get back into it. We are at Chapter 4. The line of our route to this river described no great detour, and the trees being marked as also the ground by the cartwheels, Mr Finch could have no difficulty in following our track thus far. We were now, however, to turn from a northern to a western course, and I accordingly explained this to Mr Finch in a letter which I deposited in a marked tree as arranged with him before I set out. January 10. This morning it rained heavily, but we left the encampment at six to pursue the course of the Gwydir. The deep and extensive hollows formed by the floods of this river compelled us to travel southwards for several miles. In crossing one hollow, we passed among the huts of a native tribe. They were tastefully distributed amongst drooping acacias and casuarina. Some resembled bowers under yellow fragrant mimosa. Some were isolated under the deeper shades of casuarina, while others were placed more socially, three or four together, fronting to one on the same hearth. Each hut was semicircular or circular, the roof conical, and from one side a flat roof stood forward like a portico, supported by two sticks. Most of them were close to the trunk of a tree, and they were covered not as in other parts by sheets of bark, but with a variety of materials such as reeds, grass and boughs. The interior of each looked clean, and to us passing in the rain gave some idea not only of shelter, but even of comfort and happiness. They afforded a favourable specimen of the taste of the gins, whose business it usually is to construct the huts. This village of bowers also occupied more space than the encampments of native tribes in general, Choice shady spots seemed to have been an object and had been selected with care. We had at length been able to turn westward, keeping the river trees in view. When the rain continuing, we began to experience the effects of moisture on the fellows of the wheels. The heat and the contraction had lately obliged us to tighten and wedge them to such a degree that now, when the ground had become wet, the expansion of the hole broke the tiring of the wheel. Having no forge, we could only attempt the necessary repairs with a common fire. And for this purpose, I left three men with Mr. White, and I resumed the journey with the rest of the party. The rain continuing, the soft ground so clogged the wheels that the draught was very distressing to the bullocks. We pursued a westerly direction for five miles over the ground thinly wooded with patches of open plain. Changing our course to 60 degrees west of north, we traversed a very extensive tract of clear ground until, after crossing four miles and a half of it, we reached a bend of the river and at 3pm encamped on an open spot a quarter of a mile from it. At five o'clock the other cart came up, having been substantially repaired by taking off the ring, shortening the fellows, closing them on the spokes and then replacing the ring again by drilling two holes through it. January 11. 
Pursuing a westerly course, I found the river on my right at five miles. At a mile further, it crossed my intended line of route and obliged me to turn south-southwest, in which direction we intercepted the junction of the dry river named Kareem, which we crossed on the eighth instant. The bed above the junction was narrow but deep, and the permanent character of its banks gave to this channel the appearance of a considerable tributary, which it may probably may be at some seasons, although then dry. In a section of the bank near the junction, I observed a bed of calcareous tuff. The passage of this channel was easiest for the carts at the spot where it joined that of the Guidi. We travelled after crossing along the northwestern skirts of extensive open plains and thus reached, at five miles further, another line of trees enclosing a chain of ponds on which we encamped after a journey of 12 miles. January 12. I continued the westerly course through the woods until at three miles we fell in with the river and on turning to the left, in order to avoid its immediate banks, a large lagoon also obstructed our progress. The torturous course of the river was such that it was only by pursuing a direction parallel to the general course we could hope to make sufficient progress. But in exploring the general course of only of rivers, a traveller must still grope his way occasionally, for here, after turning the lagoon, we again encountered the river, taking such a southward bend that we were compelled to travel towards the east and even northward of east to avoid the furrowed ground on its immediate bank. At length we reached an open tract, across which we travelled in a southwest direction about eight miles, when we arrived at one of those watercourses or chains of pond, which, had, which always have the appearance of being on the highest parts of the plains. As the general course of this, as far as it could be seen, was nearly east and west. As the general course of this, as far as it could be seen, was nearly east and west, I thought it might be the same channel which I had named Wheel Ponds on the seventh instant. But the range of these chains of ponds, not being confined by any hills of note, I could not be certain as to the identity or whether such channels did not separate into different branches on that level country. The ponds they contained even during the dry season and the permanent character of their banks, each lined with a single row of trees throughout a meandering course over naked plains, bespoke a providential arrangement for the support of life in these melancholy wastes, which indeed redeemed them from the character of deserts. We encamped on this chain of ponds, having first crossed the channel that we might have no impediment before us this in this morning, experience having taught us that the cattle could overcome a difficulty of this kind better when warmed to their work than at first starting from their feeding place. Some very heavy thunder showers fell, but the sky became clear in the evening, so we ascertained the latitude to be 29 degrees 39 49 south. We also obtained the bearing of Mount Riddle and other points of the Nundawa range, making our latitude 146 degrees 37 30 east. On these ponds, we first saw the beautiful crested pigeon, mentioned by Mr Oxley, as frequented the neighbourhood of the marshes of the Macquarie. January 13. We packed up our tents to proceed on our journey as usual, the weather being beautiful, but after three hours of excessive toil the bullocks had not advanced two miles because the stiff clay so clogged the wheels that it could not be easily removed. Seeing the cattle so distressed I was compelled to encamp and await the effect of the sunshine and the breeze on the clammy surface. In the meantime I rode northwards towards the river accompanied by Mr White and at about a mile from the tents we found one of the lagoons which are supplied by its floods. 
The margin was thickly imprinted with the marks of small naked feet, in all probability those of gins and children, whose most constant food in these parts appeared to be a large freshwater mussel. We next traced the course of the river westward for about five miles, being guided by a line of river trees. When we arrived, we found within them a still lagoon of deep water, the banks thereof being steep like a river, and enclosing the water within a very tortuous canal, a channel which I had no doubt belonged to the river. To the southward, the whole country was clear of wood and presented one general slope toward the line of the river. From our camp on the plain, Mount Riddle bore 123 degrees 30 east. January 14. After an unusually hot night, the morning broke amid thunderclouds which threatened by another shower to destroy our hopes of advancing this day and the next at least. Nevertheless, we lost no time in yoking the cattle and proceeding, for the heat and drought of the previous day had already formed a crust upon which the animals could travel. Meanwhile, the thunder roared and heavy showers were seen to be falling in two directions. One rain cloud in the northeast, whence the wind blew strong, nearly overtook us, while another in the southwest exhausted itself on the Nandawa range. But as the wind increased, the storm clouds sank rapidly towards the part of the horizon whence it came until the beams of the ascending sun at length overwhelmed them with a glorious flood of light and introduced a day of brilliant sunshine. We traversed as rapidly as we could through precarious plains, keeping the woods which enveloped the Guidia on our right, and thus, at the end of 12 miles, we arrived on the banks of a lagoon, apparently a continuation of the line of pond or river, which had proved such a providential relief to us after our severe suffering from want of water under Mount Fraser. Here, however, we found a broad and extensive lagoon nearly level with its banks and covered with ducks. It had the winding character and uniformity of a width of a river, but no current. I thought this reach might also contain some surplus of water of the Namoy, which could not be far distant, for we had now reached those low levels to which we had previously traced the course of that river. We travelled along the bank of this fine piece of water for two miles and found its breadth to be very uniform breadth to be very uniform. An arm trending northward then lay in our way. The country was full of holes and deep rents and, or cracks, but the soil was loose and bare as a new ploughed field. I therefore withdrew the carts to where we first came on the lagoon, not only for the sake of grass, but that we might continue our route over firmer ground, which appeared to the eastward. I had now on my map the Nandawa range, with the courses of the Namoy on one side and the Gwydia on the other. I was between these two rivers at no great distance from either. Mount Riddle, the nearest point of the range, bore 21.5 degrees south of east, being distant 42 miles. The opposite bearing 20 degrees north of west might therefore be considered to express the common direction of these waters. In a country so liable to inundation as the district between these rivers appeared to be, it was a primary object with us to travel along the highest or driest part and we could only look for this advantage in the above direction or parallel to and midway between the rivers. We could in this manner trace out their junction with more certainty and so terminate thus far the survey of both by the determination of a point so important in geography. The soil of these level open tracks consisted of a rich dark coloured clay. The lagoon was marked by a row of stunted trees which grew along its edge on each side so that the line could be distinguished from a great distance eastward and appeared to be connected with the ponds of Gorolei, that's G-O-R-O-L-E-I. 
Among the trees growing along the margin of this lagoon were several which were new to me, particularly one which bore clusters of a fruit resembling a small russet apple and about an inch in diameter. The skin was rough, rough, the pulp of a rich crimson colour, not unlike that of the prickly pear, and it had an agreeable acid flavour. This pulp covered a large rough stone containing several seeds, and it was evidently eaten by the natives as a great numbers of the bare stones lay about. The foliage of the tree very much resembled the white cedars of the colonists, and milk exuded from the stalk or leaves when broken. The great variety of a great variety of ducks and other waterfowl covered this fine piece of water. We made the latitude of the camp 29 degrees 49 south and the longitude 149 degrees 28 east. January 15. The country to the northward seemed so low and the course of the Guidia among so many lagoons so doubtful that I considered it advisable to ride in that direction before we had ventured to advance with our carts. I therefore set out this morning accompanied by Mr White in the direction already mentioned of 20 degrees west of north so that in returning the cone of Mount Riddle might guide us to the camp. Without any necessity for continuing the use of the compass which occasioned the much delay. In such cases, a heel, a star, or the unerring skill of a native is very convenient as obviating the necessity for repeatedly observing the compass in returning through pathless woods towards any point which might be easily missed without such precautions. We found in the course of a ride of 20 miles from the camp a much better country for travelling over than that in the immediate vicinity of the lagoon. We crossed at 11 miles a line of ponds in a deep channel, whereof the bank seemed the highest ground, and beyond them was a rich plain with a few clumps of trees, where the grass was also remarkably good. At 20 miles the length of our ride, we fell in with a second chain of ponds, beyond which we saw another plain. We were delighted with the prospect of so favourable a country for extending our journey, and not less so with the apparent turn of the Guidi, as indicated by its non-appearance in our ride thus far, it was obvious that the more this river turned northward, the greater would the, be the probability that it might lead to a channel unconnected with that of the Darling and terminate in some still greater water or open out a field of useful discovery. The direction of the channels we had already crossed, however, was somewhat to the south of west, and it was difficult to account for their waters otherwise than by supposing that they came from the Guidi. We could trace their course to a remote distance by the smoke of the fires of the native population, the numerous marks of the feet and the banks, with the abundant remains of mussels and bones of aquatic birds, proved that human existence was limited to these channels, not only on account of water, but of those animals, birds and fishes also, which are man's natural prey. In returning, we explored the western termination of the lagoon on which we had encamped, and thus ascertained that it was not part of any channel of flooded waters. Beyond the lagoon was a plain, apparently subject to inundation, and bounded at the distance of some miles by a lime trees, which in all probability defined the course of the Namoy. Jan 16. The party proceeded along a course I had traced the day before. The country, as far as the first chain of ponds, was full of holes which evidently were at certain seasons filled with water, and the height to which the inundations rose was marked on the trunks of the trees by a dark stain which to a certain height seemed universal. Considering these proofs of extensive flooding and the soft nature of the soil, 
we were then crossing, it was obvious that a rainy season would render our return impracticable, at least with the carts. For the first time, and with great reluctance, we left the high ground behind us to traverse a region subject to inundation without the prospect of a single hill to which we might repair in case of necessity. It was nevertheless indispensable that we should find the River Guidi and cross it before we could hope to travel under more favourable circumstances. Beyond the first channel, we traversed an open plain of rich soil similar to that of the plains near Mount Riddle. We reached the second channel at a higher part than than that attained by me previously, so that the distance traversed by the party was only 17.5 miles as determined by the latitude, and this journey, although very distressing to the cattle, was accomplished by half past two. Thermometer, 96 degrees. Here the ponds opened into a large lagoon covered with ducks. It was surrounded with the remains of numerous fires of natives, besides which lay heaps of mussel shells, unio, U-N-I-O, mixed with bones of the pelican and kangaroo. Latitude, 29 degrees, 43, 3 south. January 17. Leaving our encampment at 6am, we first crossed a small plain and then some forest land, and beyond that entered on an open plain still more extensive, but bounded by a scrub, at which we arrived after travelling seven miles. The soil of this last plain was very fine. Trees grew upon it in beautiful groups, the acacia pendula again appearing. The grass of a delicate green colour resembled the field of young wheat. The scrub beyond was close and consisted of a variety of dark-leaved shrubs, among which the eucalypti were almost the only trees to which I was not a stranger. Here I halted the carts while I penetrated three miles into this scrub, accompanied by Mr White in hopes of finding either the Namoy or the Gwydiabut without success. Continuing the journey in a direction of 37 degrees west of north, we entered an open alley, which had the appearance of being sometimes the bed of a watercourse. It terminated, however, in higher ground where, ground where bulrushes grew, and which seemed very strange, because when we then approached a much more open and elevated country, most of the ground was covered with hibiscus, with red stalk and small flower, which grew to a height of 20 inches, and alternated with patches of luxuriant grass, acacia pendula and eucalyptus. At 11 miles, we encountered a channel in which there were many ponds, its direction being like that of the others we had crossed to the southwest, southward of west. Here we encamped, the bullocks having been much fatigued and also cut in the necks by the yokes. The bed of these ponds was soft and it required some search before a good place could be found for the passage of our carts. When this was accomplished and the camp selected, I rode forward in a northwest direction, anxious to know more of the country before us. I perceived the fires of natives at no great distance from our camp, and Dawkins went forward, taking with him a tomahawk and a small loaf. He soon came upon a tribe of about 30 men, women and children, seated by ponds with half a kangaroo and some crayfish cooked before them, and also a large vessel of bark containing water. Now Dawkins must have been in appearance so different to all the ideas that these poor people had of their fellow men, that on the first sight of an such an apparition, it was not surprising that after a moment's stare, they precipitately took to the pond, floundering through it, some up to their neck to the opposite bank. He was a tall, spare figure in a close white dress, surmounted by a broad-brimmed straw hat, the whole ensemble somewhat resembling a mushroom. And these dwellers by the waters might well have believed from his silent and unceremonious intrusion that he had risen from the earth in the same manner. 
The curiosity of the natives who had vanished as fast as they could at length overcame their terrors so far as to induce them to peep from behind the trees at their mysterious visitor. Dawkins, not in the least disconcerted, made himself at home with the fires, and on seeing them on the other side began his usual speech. What for you, Jaron Budgery, white fellow, etc. He next drew forth his little loaf, endeavouring to explain its meaning and use by eating it, and he then began to chop a tree by way of shoeing off the tomahawk. But the possession of a peculiar food of his own astounded them still more. His final experiment was attended with no better effect, for when he sat down by the, their fire by way of being friendly and began to taste the kangaroo, they set up a shout which induced him to make his exit with the same silent celerity, which no doubt had rendered his debut outrageously opposed to their ideas of etiquette, which imperatively required the loud cooies. That loud cooies should have announced his approach before he came within miles of their fire. Dawkins had been cautioned as to the necessity for using this method of salutation but he was an old tar and Jack lacks his own way of proceeding on the shore. Besides, in this case, Dawkins came unawares upon them, according to his own account. And it was only by subsequent experience that we learnt the danger of thus approaching the Aboriginal inhabitants. Some of this party carried spears on their shoulders or trailing in their hands, and the natives are never more likely to use such weapons than when under the impulse of sudden terror. I continued my ride for six miles in the northwest direction without discovering any indication of either the river or, on the contrary, the country was chiefly open, being beautifully variegated with clumps of picturesque trees. The weather was very hot until a thunder shower fell and cooled the air to some degree. During the night, the mosquitoes were very troublesome and the men rolled about in the grass, unable to find rest. January 18. At half past six, we proceeded in a northwest direction until at seven miles a thick scrub of acacias obliged us to turn a little to the northward. When we had advanced ten miles, a burnt forest with numerous columns of smoke arising from different parts of the country before us proved almost beyond doubt that we were at length approaching the river. Satisfied that the dense line of wood whence these columns of smoke arose was the river, I turned westward for the purpose in the first place of proceeding along the skirts of it and the opener ground, secondly that the natives whose voices resounded within the woods might have time to see us, and thirdly that we might make out a day's journey before we approached the river bank. From west I at length bent our course to northwest and finally northward, thus arriving on the banks of the Gwydir after a journey of 15 miles. But here the river was so much altered in its character that we could have been induced by mere appearance to believe this stream was the same river, which we came upon about a degree further to the eastward. The banks were low and water-worn, the southern or left bank being in general the steepest, its height about 14 feet. The breadth was insignificant, not more than 12 or 14 feet, the current slow but constant, and the water of a whitish colour. I at first supposed it might only be it might be only a branch of the river we had seen above until I ascertained by sending Mr. White to examine it upwards and a man on horseback downwards that it preserved the same attenuated character in both directions. The cause appeared to be very torturous and it flowed through a soft absorbent soil in which no rock of any kind could be seen. In the rich soil near the water we found a species of cucumber of about the size of a plum, the flower being of a purple colour. In taste, it resembled a cucumber, but that it was also very bitter. 
Mr. White and I peppered it, washed the slices with vinegar, then chewed it, but neither of us had the courage to swallow it. The character of the spiders was very strange, and it seemed as if we had arrived in a whole new world of entomology. They resembled an enameled decoration, the body consisting of a hard, shelly coat of dark blue colour, symmetrically spotted with white, and it was nearly circular, being armed with six sharp projecting points. The latitude of this camp was 29 degrees, 28, 34 south. The general course of the Guidi appeared to be nearly westward, between the first and last points thus ascertained by us, and this direction being also in continuation of the river seen so much further to the eastward by Mr Cunningham, we could entertain no doubt as to its as to the identity. The channel we had crossed before we came to the running stream at our present encampment could only be accounted for as separate ducts for the swollen waters of the river when no longer confined by any immediate high ground to one great channel and hence the attenuated state, as we inferred, of the actual bed of the stream. This I resolved to trace through one day's journey and then to cross if we found no change and so proceed northward. January 19. We travelled as the dense line of river wood permitted for 11 miles, the ground outside this belt being in general open and firmer than the nearer to the river, which was distinguished by certain inequalities and was besides rather thickly wooded, we found that on a bearing of 20 degrees south of west, we just cleared the southern bends of the stream. We heard the natives in the woods during our journey, but none approached the party. In order to encamp, we directed our course northward and making the river bank after travelling one mile, we encamped upon it. I then sent Mr White due north in order to ascertain if any other channel existed, but he found on the contrary that the ground rose gradually beyond the river, which convinced me that this in which the water flowed was the most northerly channel. The latitude was 29 degrees, 31, 49 south. January 20. I gave the party a day's repose that I might put my map together and duly consider the general course of the waters as they appeared thereon and also the actual character of the stream in on which we were encamped. The banks consisted of soft earth having a uniform slope and they were marked with various horizontal lines probably denoting the height which the water had attained during different floods. The river had a peculiar uniformity of width and would therefore, but for the torture, tortuous course, resemble a canal. The width was small in proportion to the depth, and both were greatest at the sharp bends of the channel. The water was of a white clay colour. The ground to the distance of half a mile from each bank was broken and furrowed into grassy hollows, resembling old channels, so that the slightest appearance of such inequality was a sure indication of the river being near, while we travelled parallel to this course. The whole of the country beyond was so level that the slightest appearance appearance of a hollow <clears throat> the whole of the country beyond was so level that the slightest appearance of a hollow was a most welcome sight as it relieved us from any despair of finding water. At four o'clock on this day the thermometer stood at ninety seven degrees, the clouds were cumulus stratus and cirrus, and there was a good breeze from the northeast. January 24. The cattle being much fatigued by incessant travelling during great heat, I left most of them at camp, at this camp with Mr White and half the men of the party, and I crossed the river with the other portion and some pack animals carrying a supply, small supply of provisions and some blankets, etc. The river was accessible to the cattle at only one place, the muddy bank by the water's edge being so soft that they were everywhere else in danger of sinking. The men were therefore obliged to carry the packages across, and load the animals on the opposite bank. This work was completed by 10am, 
and we proceeded due north from the depot camp. We soon saw a flock of eight emus. The country consisted of open forest, which, growing gradually thinner at length, left intervals of open plain. The ground seemed to rise for the first mile and then to slope northward towards a wooden flat, a wooded flat, which was likely to contain water, although we found none there. Penetrating next to a narrow strip of casuarina scrub, we found the remains of native huts, and beyond this scrub, we crossed a beautiful plain, covering with shining verdure and ornamented with trees, which, <clears throat> although dropped in nature's careless taste, in inverted commas, gave the country appearance of an extensive park. We next entered a brush of acacia pendula, which grew higher and more abundant than I had ever seen it elsewhere. After 12, the day became excessively warm, and although no water could be found, we were compelled to encamp at 2pm, one of the party, Burnett, having become seriously ill. As the country appeared to decline towards some wooded hollows, I hoped that one of those might be found to contain a pool, especially as the wood appeared to consist of that species of casuarina, which in the colony is termed swamp oak, and which usually grows in moist situations. Subsequent experience, however, proved quite the reverse, for on exploring the deepest hollows and densest thickets about our camp, not a hollow containing the least moisture could be found. Thus the cattle were compelled to endure this privation once more after a hard day's work, and during an unusually hot evening. To add to our distress, the doctor, as Souter was termed by his comrades, having as soon as we halted set out in search of water with tea kettle in his hand, did not return. When the sun had nearly set, a black swan was observed high in air, slowly winging its way towards the southwest, and many smaller birds appeared to fly in the same direction. Even the sight of an aquatic bird was refreshing to us, but this one did not promise much for the country to the northward, for at that time of the evening we might safely conclude that the greater body of water lay to the southwest in the direction of the swan's flight. I found the longitude of this camp to be 29 degrees, 30, 23, 54 south, making our distance from the camp on the river about 10 miles. January 22. The non-appearance of Sauter occasioned me much uneasiness. Fortunately, the trees were marked along our line of route from the river and it was probable that he would this morning find the line and either follow us or retrace his step towards the camp on the river. The men who knew him best thought he would prefer the latter alternative as he had been desirous of remaining at the depot. This was likely, however, to occasion some inconvenience to us as he was useful hand and I did not despair even then of finding some use for the tea kettle. Burnett had recovered. The morning was clear with a pleasant breeze from the northeast and the irresistible attraction of a perfectly unknown region still led us northward. The undulations were scarcely perceptible and the woods were disposed in narrow strips enclosing plains on which grew abundance of grass. They occupied the lowest parts of umbrageous clumps of casuarina in such situations, often led me on success, unsuccessful searches of water, until I was almost convinced that these trees only grew where none could possibly ever be. The prospect of finding any at length seemed almost hopeless, but I had determined to try the result of as a long journey. The prospect of finding any at length seemed almost hopeless, but I had determined to try the result of as a long The prospect of finding any at length seemed almost hopeless, but I had determined to try the result of as a long journey as could be accomplished this day. 
with the intention of giving, in the event of failure, the little water remaining in our cask to the animals and then to retrace our steps during the night and the cool part of the following day so as to regain, if possible, the depot camp next evening. Meanwhile, my party, faint with heat and thirst, toiled after me. In some parts of these parched plains, numerous prints of human feet appeared, but the soil, which had evidently been very soft when these impressions were made, was now baked as hard as brick, and although we felt that, in inverted commas, on desert sands, to a joy to scan the rudest steps of fellow man, these made us only more sensible to the altered state of the surface at the time. Water had evidently once lodged in every hollow, and the prints of the kangaroo when pursued by the natives and impeded by the mud were visible in various places. At five miles we entered a wood of pine trees, the first we had seen since we left the Namoi, but on passing through it we discovered no other change. A thick wood of acacia pendula fell next in our way, and then several patches of casuarina. On approaching one of these, I observed a very slight hollow, and on following it to the right or eastward about a mile, the party having in the meantime halted, I perceived a few dry leaves in a heap, as if, a gathered, as if gathered by water falling in that direction. Trifling as this circumstance was, it was nevertheless unusual on that level surface, and I endeavoured to trace the slope downwards until my horse, who had at other times would neigh after his companions, here pulled hard on the rein as if to cross a slight rise before me. I laid the bridle on his neck while he proceeded eagerly forward over the rise and through some wood beyond which my eyes were even more blessed with the sight of several ponds of water, with banks of shining verdure, the whole extended in a line which resembled the bed of a considerable stream. I galloped back with the good news to the party whose desperate thirst seemed to make them incredulous, especially as I continued our line of route northward until it intercepted at about a mile on, as I foresaw it would this chain of ponds. It was still early, but we had already accomplished a good day's journey, and we could thus encamp and turn our cattle to browse on the luxuriant verdure which surrounded these ponds. They were wide, deep, full and close to each other, being separated only by grassy intervals resembling dikes. Drift timber and other fluviatile relics lay high on the banks, and several wares for catching fish worked very neatly, stood on ground quite dry and hard. Lower down, as indicated by the flood marks, the banks were much bro more broken and the channel seemed deeper, while enormous blue gum trees grew on the banks. And I was therefore of opinion that some larger river was before us at no great distance. I did not explore this channel further, being desirous to refresh my horses and rest the party for continuing our journey next morning. In the soil here, the only rock I found was a large, hard boulder, being a conglomerate of pebbles and grains of quartz, cemented by decomposed felspar or clay. Latitude 29 degrees 9.51 south. January 23. After crossing the line of ponds and a slight elevation beyond them, we came upon a channel of considerable breadth, which contained several other very large ponds separated by quicksands, which afforded but a precarious package for the passage for the pack animals. Both banks were steep, the average width exceeding 50 yards. Beyond this river channel, the wood consisted chiefly of casuarina. We next penetrated through two scrubs of dwarf eucalypti, and some of the tree and some trees of the calatrus were also seen. At six miles, the woods assumed a grander character, masses of casuarina, enclosed open spaces covered with rich grass, and being in some directions extensive, afforded park-like vistas, which had a pleasing effect from the rich combination of verdure and shade in a season of excessive heat.
In one of these grass alleys, a large kangaroo was seen, the first since we left the upper part of the Gwidi. The absence of this animal from the plains and low grounds was remarkable, and we had reason to conclude that he seldom frequents those parts. At eight miles, our course was intercepted by a deep and rapid river, the largest that we had seen yet. I had approached within a few yards of the brink, and I was not aware of its being near until I saw the opposite water-worn shore and the living waters hurrying along to the westward. They were white and turbid, and the banks consisting of clay were nearly perpendicular at this point, and about 20 feet higher than the surface of the stream. On further examination, I found that the course was very tortuous and the water deep. My horse was, however, got across by a man wading up to the neck. The softness of the clay near the stream at some parts and the steep water-worn face of the banks at the others rendered the passage difficult. We were all delighted, however, to meet such an obstruction and I chose a favourable spot for our camp within a bend of the river and I made arrangements for bringing forward the party left with Mr White on the Gwydir, also for the construction of a boat by preparing a saw pit and looking for wood favourable for that purpose. There was an abundance of rich grass along the banks of this river, and here our horses at length enjoyed some day's rest. January 24. Early this morning I sent back a party of men with the freshest of the bullocks to Mr White, to whom I enclosed a letter for Mr Finch which I requested might be concealed in a tree with certain marks. I hoped, however, that by the time Mr Finch might have overtaken Mr White's party. Four men remained with me, two carpenters, a sawyer's man and my own servant. The morning was clouding and a refreshing refreshing shower fell at 9am. We soon found that this river contained fish in great abundance and of three kinds at least. First, a firm but coarse-tasting fish, Having strong scales, this made a groaning sound when on the hook. Secondly, the fish we found on the peel, commonly called by colonists the cod, although most erroneously since it has nothing to do whatever. It has nothing whatever to do with malacopterigious fishes. And thirdly, the sailfish which we had caught on the lagoon near Tangulda. After maturely considering the prospects this river opened to us then, before exploring its course, it remained questionable whether it did or did not belong to the Darling. We were nearly in the prolongation of the supposed course of that river, and still nearer to its supposed outlet on the southern coast than we were to any part of the northeast, northern coast of Australia. No rising ground could be seen to the northward or westward, and whether we proceeded in a boat or along its bank, it was desirable to explore the course of this river downwards. The horses required rest and it was un- and it was necessary to unite the party before we- this could be attempted. I expected Mr Finch to arrive with the stores and in the meantime the preparation of a strong boat was going forward to be ready in case our further discoveries might lead to navigable waters. With this view it was made to take into three pieces. The bottom being nearly flat formed one portion and the two sides the others. They were to be united by small screw bolts, the carpenter having brought a number of these useful articles for such purposes, and when the sides and bottom were detached, they could be carried on the carts. Thus, we were to proceed with a portable punt, ready for the passage of any river or water which might be in our way. January 25th. This day we laid down the keel and principal timbers of a boat to be strongly planked, so as to be proof against the common drift timber in the river. For this part of the work, we used blue gum, eucalyptus, the only calatrus we knew of 
being several miles back along the route. At night, some stars appeared, whereby I ascertained the latitude of this camp to be 29 degrees to south. The thermometer at noon was 76 degrees and at 4 p.m. 82. January 26. A clear morning with a fine breeze, the thermometer, which had ranged from 90 to 108 during the last two months, now stood at 64 degrees. To breathe such refreshing air and not move forward was extremely irksome. The river rose this day about a quarter of an inch. Thermometer at 6, 64 degrees, wind south at noon, 86 degrees. In the evening, the sky became overcast with a cold and stormy wind. At 10pm, I was called out of my tent to look at the fire stick which appeared in motion amongst the trees northeastward of our camp. We had seen no natives, but their habit of carrying a light whenever they stir at night, which they do but seldom, is well known, and the light we then saw moved in the direction of our horses and saw pit. Our numbers did not admit of our keeping a watch, and although I had ordered the men to bring the dogs on this ride, they had brought none. We could only therefore lie down and trust to Providence. January 27. The clear, cool weather continuing, I endeavoured to obtain a view of the horizon from a tree, raised by a block and tackled to the top of another, but no point of high land appeared on any side to break the, a woody horizon as level as the sea. At 6am thermometer, 70 degrees, wind south. The natives to the number of 10 or 12 appeared on the opposite bank. Our attention was first drawn to them by the snorting and starting of the horses, which happened to be grazing by the riverside. On seeing us approach, they suddenly disappeared. About a dozen eggs, white and the size of, the, of a blackbird, were found by one of the men in the sand near the riverbank. Each contained a perfectly formed lacertine reptile. This morning my attention was drawn by a noise resembling the growl of a dog when I perceive a black insect nearly as large as a bird carrying something like a grasshopper, alight and disappear into a hole. On digging, it suddenly arose from amidst the dust and escaped, but we found there several large larvae. This was the most bulky insect I ever saw, a beautiful species of stilbum, frequently visited my tent. Its buzz, having two distinct notes, had a very pleasing sound. The sandy banks abounded with a species of Monedula, and others of the Bembacidae tribe. In dead trees we found the Scutellaria corallifera, as described in the appendix to Captain King's voyage. This day the river fell nearly an inch. January 28, Mr White arrived with the carts and the depot party, including Souter, the doctor, who had wandered from our camp in search of water on the 21st instant. His story was that on going about six miles from the camp, he lost his way and fell in with the blacks who detained him one day and two nights. But having at length effected his escape while they were asleep, early on the second morning he made his made the best of his way towards the Gwydiw and thus reached the depot camp. This day Mr White crossed the river and examined the country for several miles beyond it in search of pine, which we required for the completion of our boat, but we found none in that direction. About three miles to the north of our camp, he came upon a chain of large lagoons extending in a westerly direction and the drift marks on the trees showed that at some seasons a considerable current of water flowed there to the westward, rising occasionally to the height of 10 or 12 feet above the surface of these lagoons. He also saw a kangaroo, a circumstance which indicated that the higher forest land was not far distant. Thermometer at 6am, 67 degrees, 
wind northeast, high, sky clear at noon, thermometer 87 degrees, clear sky. We now looked with some anxiety for Mr Finch's arrival and in order to preserve our provisions as long as possible, I determined to make the abundance of fish available by distributing fishing hooks to the men and to reduce their weekly ration of pork from three and a half pounds to two pounds. In fishing we were tolerably successful, but flour was the article of which we stood most in need, and for this country afforded no substitute, although I reduced the allowance of that also. The only starving members of the party were our unfortunate dogs, which had become almost too weak to kill a kangaroo had any been seen there. Neither did that region contain bandicoots, which in other situations had been occasionally caught about dead trees with the assistance of some of the watchdogs. We were obliged to shoot hawks and crows and boil them into a mess, which served at least to keep these poor animals alive. January 29. The cart was sent back about 12 miles for some of the calatrous trees required for planking, none having been seen nearer to our camp. William Woods, who had gone out in search of the spare cattle early in the morning, did not return by 1pm, and as he is a good bushman, we began to feel apprehensive that the natives had detained or perhaps killed him. I therefore proceeded in search with four men, and scoured the forest within five miles of the camp without discovering any traces of either the natives or of him. On returning to camp, however, at sunset, we had the satisfaction to find that he had reached the camp about an hour before us, having during the whole day been unable to find his way back to our camp through the trackless forest. Today the river fell another inch, and this failure of the waters as upon the Namoy added much to the irksomeness of the delay necessary for the completion of a boat. In the present case, however, more than on the Namoy, the expected arrival of Mr Finch and the exhausted state of our cattle disposed me to give the party some days rest at so convenient a point, and towards which I had indeed looked forward with this view in the efforts we made to attain it. The characters of my men were now better known to me, and I could not help feeling some sympathy for the doctor, as the men called Souter. He was also what they termed a new chum, or one newly arrived. He left the mess of his fellow prisoners and cooked and ate by himself. In figure, he was the finest specimen of our race in the party, and as he lay by his solitary fire, he formed a striking foreground to the desert landscape. In his novitiate, he was most willing to do anything his fellows required, and I often felt disposed to interfere when I overheard such words as, Doctor, go for a kettle of water while I light the fire, etc. Worthington, in particular, I overheard telling him he had been a swell at home. But a few days afterwards, the doctor came to me stating that an immediate operation was necessary to save the life of Worthington and demanding the dissecting instruments. On inquiry, I found that this man, alias Five O'Clock, had a slight swelling in the groin for which the doctor's intended remedy, as far as I could make out, was an incision to the lower part of the abdomen. I gravely assured Five O'Clock that if the doctor thought such an operation necessary, it must take place, although I should defer lending him the instruments for a day or two. Thus I succeeded in establishing the importance of the doctor's position, and we heard no more of this, of his having been a swell, or of the swelling of Worthington, who on that pretext seemed inclined to escape work. January 30. The car returned with some fine timber, which was soon placed on the saw pit. Meanwhile, a stockyard for cattle was erected on the higher ground. No fish could be caught this day, and we supposed that the natives were busy taking them above and below our camp, for in their mode of fishing few can escape. We had previously seen the osier nettings erected by them across the various currents, and especially in the Gwydir, where some had been noticed of very neat workmanship. The frame of each tre trellis 
was as well squared as if it had been the work of a carpenter, and the twigs were inserted at regular intervals so as to form by crossing each other a strong and efficient kind of net or snare. We, where these were erected, a small opening was left toward the middle of the current, probably that some bag or netting might be applied there to receive the fish, while the natives in the river should, river above should drive them towards it. The river continued still to fall during the day. January 31. The sky overcast a good supply of fish caught in the morning. A small black native dog made its appearance about the camp and was immediately run down by and worried by our dogs. From the miserable mangy appearance of this animal, I conjectured that it belonged to the natives, who were probably skulking about us, and who were very much attached to their dogs. I was therefore very sorry that this poor animal had been killed, and that no traces might remain of our apparent want of kindness. I ordered the body to be burnt, and gave positive instructions to prevent strange dogs from being worried in future. This day we completed the planking of the boat. February 1st. The night had been calm and close, and just before daybreak, distant thunder resembling discharges of artillery was heard in the southwest. The sun rose clear, but was soon obscured when the wind sprung up from the northeast. I sent Mr. White with a party of men down the river to clear away any trees likely to obstruct the boat, and to ascertain whether any other impediments appeared in the channel. On his return, he reported that at the distance of some miles down, the channel was filled with dead trees of considerable size, and that in another place the bottom consisted of flat rocks which occasioned a rapid or a shallow of considerable length, over which our boat, being made of very heavy materials, could not be carried without considerable delay. This unpleasant intelligence and the continued subsidence of the stream determined me to explore its course with a party on horseback until I could ascertain whether it took the desired direction, namely northwest, and whether at any lower point the channel improved so much as to enable us to relieve the cattle of part at least of their load by carrying it in the boat. I was most desirous of leaving the cattle there and some of the party to await the arrival of Mr Finch while I continued our researches with the boat, if we could possibly find water sufficient for the purpose. This method of proceeding was contemplated in my original plan on leaving Sydney when I hoped to reach a navigable stream where the cattle might refresh for the return journey until the party, thus enabled to extend its operations by water, might fall back on some such depot. End of chapter 4